Good morning again, church. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. Uh, I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. Uh, Today, we are all the way to John chapter 20. Uh, This is a message entitled, The Doubting Eyewitnesses. The Doubting Eyewitnesses. We're actually in our last sermon of our series going through the book of John, our, our 11th and final sermon in this series, For the Love, that we've been doing alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. John 20, we'll read verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but... The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Everyone say first. First. And stooping down to look in, he, this is John, the writer of this gospel speaking, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. The disciples went back to their home. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But, verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Can't make this stuff up. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that Jesus had told these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I ask that you would add a blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond my thoughts or opinions or any of our familiarity or thoughts or anything. There are good reasons, Jesus, to believe in you. 
Not just to believe or think that you're alive, but to have life in your name by believing. And that's the whole point of why John said that he wrote this book, this gospel account in the first place. And that's the whole point of life and the air that we breathe in our time on earth. Believing in you and having life in your name. So help us today. Amen. If you've watched any modern crime or detective shows, you, you'll notice that most of them <laughs> most of them often have this uh, depiction that the way to gather evidence is supposedly with complex DNA processing, uh, often, often with uh, fancy faux science to boot. And it's almost as if beeping computers with holographic screens is the only reliable method for gathering information in investigation. But in real life, the investigative tactics used today really more or less mirror the same tactics used a few thousand years ago. Eyewitness testimony, in particular, is a tool that has bridged time and culture And it stands as one of the most important things today in unearthing truth. Famous crime scene detective J. Warner Wallace is the author of Forensic Faith. He began to apply the same investigative process that he used for cold cases to the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels. And as an atheist, he sought to disprove the reliability of the New Testament documents. But what he found is that his own doubts were disproved, and he became a believer. He later wrote, I'm not a Christian because I was raised that way. I'm a Christian because it's evidentially true. Eyewitness testimony. The other important thing about eyewitness testimony is that it's important to have what's called varying perspective. I'll give you an example. If you were to come upon the scene of a crime or an otherwise important event, and you had, let's say, four eyewitnesses, and they all gave you the exact same testimony with the exact same words, you would know that their testimony was tainted, that there's collusion of their testimony. You would know that this isn't a true testimony because uniformity falsifies a claim. But with the eyewitness testimony of the New Testament, you have four different gospel accounts that present varying perspectives. We have a unity of message. There's one message, but there's no uniformity of language that colludes the message. In John's eyewitness account here alone, even in the first 18 verses of chapter 20, there's varying perspectives in this alone. And I want to examine, as I work through this, this is how I want to preach through this text, I want to examine the eyewitness testimony of two groups of people. And I trust that you will see that the eyewitness testimony of the women and the men will show us something important about, number one, the credibility of the resurrection, two, the glory of the risen Savior, and finally, Jesus' tender care for us. Now, before I go any further, I want to talk about doubt. 
Jesus approaches the men and the women differently. But one thing that they both have in common is that both groups of people were dealing with doubt. If you read on in the, in the chapter, you'll find Thomas dealing with doubt. Uh, I think Thomas uh, has gotten a bad rap in Christian history. You might have heard the, the term before, doubting Thomas, which I think is incredibly unfair. Because, first of all, all of the eyewitnesses, in my understanding, were processing doubt uh, and, and showing slight hesitation about a person who was dead but now apparently not dead, I think that's probably okay. Jesus raising from the dead is supposed to blow our minds. So if a little bit of mental processing precedes faith, I think that's understandable. And if anything, we can see that these eyewitnesses were not gullible. And I feel like there's a difference between doubt and unbelief that's important for us to understand. Let me just put it this way. When you confront doubt with good evidence, doubt can be turned to trust. But when unbelief is confronted by even good evidence often, it remains unchanged. And if you struggle with with doubt... Maybe you, you feel stigmatized in the church. Like, I'm not supposed to say I have doubt because like, we're not, no one else here has that. and You're not supposed to have doubt, right? If you struggle with doubt, maybe you're asking questions about the Bible. I want to invite you to come out of the closet of doubt. I think you'll find that you're in good company as you're processing doubt. And I think more importantly, you'll see that the Bible can stand to your honest questions. You, you even see that when you honestly bring your questions to God, your faith will be strengthened. The eyewitnesses of the resurrection displayed their doubt and their weakness, and it actually served to underline the, the credibility and the power of their testimony and the power of the gospel itself. So number one, how the women's testimony displays the credibility of the resurrection. Now, I say women because other gospel accounts confirm that it, was, it wasn't just Mary alone, even though Jesus passionately and lovingly singles her out here. Verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came. Now, it doesn't say she came alone. It says she came to the tomb early, specifically while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. I mean, that was enough to cause her freak-out session to go. She didn't even look any further. She just ran home. Now, even, even though John doesn't mention other women, the beautiful scandal of it all is that he shows that Jesus appeared first, not to men, but to women. Maybe there's a shred of truth and everyone's, you know, Favorite old playground axiom. You know, girls rule, boys drool. Okay, maybe, maybe there's not. But here's what you need to know. The contemporary audience that first heard these claims of John, the contemporary culture that heard John's account, ancient Near East, patriarchal, Jewish culture, they thought this detail of 
Jesus appearing first to women, they thought it to be not very credible. In fact, a discrediting detail, if not foolish. Now, to be clear, the the culture struggled with a, a subtle rejection of God. It wasn't just sexism, it was that, but it was also spitting in the face of a wise creator who created, as Genesis 1 says, he created mankind in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So this problem wasn't just a problem amidst people, but a problem of blasphemy before God that would take a woman and make her lesser and her testimony lesser. Even at the time, the testimony of a woman wasn't even admissible in the court of law, even on small legal matters. So why would God choose a woman's testimony to bear primary witness to the single most important event in human history? Isn't this foolish? Many thought so. And maybe they were right. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. His weakness is bigger than our strength. His foolishness is greater than our greatest thoughts. And ironically, it's the very scandal of it all that makes the women's testimony so credible, uniquely credible. I mean, think about it. If you were going to make up a story you wouldn't choose a quote-unquote compromised witness as your primary eyewitness. You would look for a Jewish man if you were going to make up a story. But Jesus didn't make up a story. He actually hung suffocating on a very real Roman cross. For the joy set before him, the Bible says, the joy of restored relationship with you And me, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he died for our very real, very severe punishment, taking on our sin on the cross. And on the third day, specifically when it was still dark, he got up out of the grave to show his power over death, sin, and the devil. And he appeared first to women. Why did he appear first to women? Because that's what he chose to do. And he's the boss. When you can get yourself up out of death, you can do whatever you want. Jesus didn't need a good PR campaign that day any more than he needs it now. The most powerful of human beings today will bow at his feet. He doesn't need their tweets. He doesn't need our PR. He doesn't need, he wasn't looking for tolerance from the prevailing culture then or now. He was seeking to transform it from the inside out. So it was precisely how Jesus went against culture, appearing first to women, that underlines the credibility of this eyewitness testimony. Now, number two, how the women's testimony displays the glory of the risen Savior. I think the way Jesus approaches Mary here with this air of veiled mysteriousness is so beautiful. I think, dare I say, it's, it's probably more captivating than, than the best romance scene you've ever watched. 
It's powerful. Here you have Mary. She's just overwhelmingly heartbroken, just, just dominated by grief. And she's talking with angels. Never stops to think like, wait a minute, those dudes are angels. She just carries on in her grief. And then verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. I mean, she is so overwhelmed with her, her pain that she's not seeing things right. At any moment, she could have uh, doubted her doubt. She could have remembered the promise that Jesus made so many times about rising from the dead on the third day. But in her mind, the paradigm didn't even exist because she was so overwhelmed with pain from this perfect, mysterious one being dead. Now, here's the thing. Here's why I can relate to this and understand this, at least because of this. Number one, dead people tend to remain dead. That, that was a thing then. It's a thing now. And so it wasn't even in her her paradigm to question that. She was just overwhelmed with grief. Now, the other thing is when you're overwhelmed with grief, there's something that that grief does to all the other processes of your mind. I mean, at any point in her debilitating sadness, she could have thought like, man, you know, Jesus said something about this whole empty tomb crisis that I'm kind of, you know, working through right now. But no, it didn't even enter her mind. And I get this. This is very relatable to me, painfully relatable to me. I mean, how many times have I been in an overwhelming emotional rampage and something that would, you know, some, some vital information that would temper my, my, my tantrum uh, could come to me something that my mom or my friend had said or my wife, but I just will not allow it entry. My wife says, you know, would say naturally, if you asked her, all too often, like anytime sports are on, maybe too soon. <laughs> now here's the glorious thing about Jesus. Her doubt didn't make Jesus any less alive or any less present with her in the middle of her pain. Her inability to see him didn't make him not see her. And you need to know this, that your faith in Jesus doesn't make Jesus any more or any less Jesus. He is God, and he is glorious whether you think so or not. And he is glorious whether you feel his glory or not. Now, here's what your faith does do, which is why this is important to you. Your faith brings you into alignment with his glory, the same eternal glory that was and is and is to come. Your faith right now brings you into alignment with his glory. Your faith makes you present with the ever-present one. And this leads us to our next point, number three, how the women's testimony displays Jesus' tender care for us. The angels had already asked her, woman, why are you weeping? And this wasn't to elicit information. They, they were reproving her. And Jer Jesus continues on with the same kind of, of reproval and correction. Verse 15, he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
whom are you seeking? Now, when he says woman, he uses the Greek word gune, which he had used tenderly with his mother all the way through John. You can see Jesus uses this woman with her. And it's better translated, dear woman, precious woman, why are you weeping? He's tenderly drawing her in. And the more he is drawing her in, and the angels are saying the same thing, she's putting up guards and getting chippy with him. Look, if you took his body some more, just tell me. Now, here's my opinion. I think that because of Mary's troubled past, you think you have a troubled past? Mary's might even be worse. And I think that she had been so familiar with and jaded by sin that she was just used to hearing male voices and negotiating within the games of manipulative men. And she just assumed that this voice behind her was the gardener, probably there in cahoots with a grave robber, and there probably to to negotiate or blackmail her. And she just got chippy with this male voice. And here's the sad part about that at this moment, that in her instinctive mode of self-protection, she was shielding herself from the very voice of her Savior. And many of us do this. We're trying to protect ourselves, right? Right? protecting ourselves from harm, and we're rejecting our healer. We're drowning out the voice of our Savior, and this is what Mary is doing to Jesus. So what what does Jesus do? Does he shame her? Does he, what was that word, man-explain or whatever it is? Mansplain? You say, you know, your, your pain's not really reasonable, Mary. No. He draws in deeper, and with one cutting word, her life is transformed. That word is her name. He just tenderly says, Mary. And this woman who is just possessed by grief, in one word, from this powerful person who spoke the universe into existence with his words, one word, she is now dominated by joy. I mean, maybe it was the, his, his accent, the way he said her name that she was familiar with. I know my kids respond to my voice and the way I say their name. But she just goes from grieving to all of a sudden she is jumping on him, squeezing the life out of him. If she could, she can't. And he says, he says don't, don't cling to me. Now, here's another thing. I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, hey, get your hands off of me like you're dirty. I'm clean. I think he's saying to her, I'm ascending to the Father right now, and someday, Mary, there will be that forever hug that, that we get to share. It's coming. But for now, I'm going to the Father, and you're going to have something better. You're going to have something better than you've had. You're going to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And I need to go so that you can have that. I, I want to guard your heart, Mary. I want you to have all that I have for you right now. And I believe the Holy Spirit is here to empower us today so that we can hear the tender voice of our Savior whispering our name. And so that we can be so indwelled with his power that we spill out the same voice that spoke to Mary. There are people that are so overwhelmed with grief dominated by depravity, that they don't need us to go to them and to set them straight. 
They don't need us to explain to them how they need to, to, you know, to live better. They need us to speak their true name with the prophetic power of God. And the Holy Spirit is here to speak to us and through us. Moving on from points one through three, I believe we can also glean so much from A, how the men's testimony displays the credibility of the resurrection. Now, just like we have already established, the, the world might have thought it was weak for the testimony of the resurrection to be given by women, and that weakness led to a strength that we can see from our perspective. And likewise, I see a, wit, a weakness displayed by the men that I, at least in my mind, serves to underline the believability of this account. And here's the weakness. They're macho, hyper-male bragging. It doesn't seem important, but it's, at least for me, it's easy to relate to. Makes it more believable to this guy here. In my opinion, the details about who got to the tomb first matter about as much as which of them could do more push-ups when they got there. And it might seem like pointless details, but John was really going for accuracy about all the details, the pointless ones and the really important ones. Uh, And it might just be that he wanted to add those true details in there too about him getting to the tomb first because he, after all, did win the race. Now, in defense of Peter, I got to speak up for all of us Peters. If you read in your Bible, dude might have lost the race. But who's the one who was brave enough to go into the tomb first? That's right. That's my guy, Peter. <laughs> D.A. Carson's a theologian. His uh, commentary on John, he says, Peter may arrive second, but true to his nature, he impetuously rushed right into the tomb. Here's the thing. Very real, weak men that are weak like me actually saw the risen Christ. And if John took pains to relate the less important facts, then I believe that he also took pains to relate the super crucial and important facts. Now B, how the men's testimony displays the glory of the risen Savior. What is the significance of all of this talk about grave cloths and how they were folded up and stuff? Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following John and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. What's the point of all this? Um, I think John's wanting us to see a very real contrast between how this tomb looks And how another tomb looked in John 11. John wants us to contrast the resurrection of Lazarus with the resurrection of Jesus. If you remember John 11, Jesus comes to uh, Bethany where Lazarus died four days earlier. Four days, not three. And Jesus, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. 
He cried. He, he related to the grief of these people even though he knew the hope that they didn't know. Isn't that amazing? Jesus can relate to you. And he said to them, unroll the stone. So a bunch of people would have had to roll that stone back and they, in the King James, I love it, uh, Mary says, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> His body had already started to decompose and, and they rolled the, the stone, the tomb back and Jesus speaks to a dead man. It's bold right there. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man listened. That's our God right there. He came out, but it says that he was bound by the linen cloths. And so Jesus said to his disciples, he said, unbind him. Now compare that to our chapter, John 20. We see an infinitely more glorious one showing the power of his far more glorious resurrection body. Lazarus body would die again. You know, he, he'd kind of have a little deja vu moment with death again and be like, okay, wait a minute. I've been here before. I don't like this. And he would die again. Jesus died once for our sin, rose from the dead, and he ever lives. Lazarus' body couldn't penetrate the grave cloths. But Jesus' body somehow dissipated 75 pounds of spices, which I don't get. He went right through the grave cloths and folded those bad boys up in doing that. And then he unrolled the tomb. I'm thinking, I'm feeling like he didn't even touch it. He was just like, boom, stone, get, get away, you know. And then if you read on in chapter 20, it gets even more exciting. Dude starts walking through locked doors. Jesus is the most glorious, most powerful. He's superior to Lazarus, to Moses, to Elijah, to Enoch, to thousands upon thousands of angels. Finally, how the men's testimony displays the tender care of Jesus for us. And this is super crucial, church. Even when John here claims that he believed, he's still acting like a doubter. Check out verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, this is third mention of the order of who reached the tomb first. It was important to him. <laughs> this other disciple also went in. It says, he saw and believed. What did he see? He saw an empty tomb. That's what he saw. It says that even from the, the lack of a body, that was enough for him to believe. But here's my issue. He might have said that he was a believe, you know, that in that point he was believing, but he didn't appear to be acting out his faith. We see by verse 10 that he went home. We know from the other gospel accounts that he went all the way home to Galilee. They walked days journey all the way home. It just doesn't seem like the behavior of people who are taking Jesus' words at face value. But they're believers. Verse 9 concedes this, that they still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And that's the point. He was believing, but he was still struggling and acting with ignorance and even some foolishness and unbelief. This is so much like my last 21 years of knowing Jesus. I 
was led to Jesus by a campus ministry as a teenager. And since then, I've had so many moments where I'm believing in Jesus, but I'm acting in ignorance and foolishness and unbelief and weakness. And so what does Jesus do for me? Pretty much just what he did for these men. Jesus walked to Galilee to find them and to restore them and to feed them. He fed them countless fish too. Jesus went after them and Jesus comes after you as well. You need to know that God is not done with you. If you're a believer in Jesus in here, good. But there's more for you. There's much more from you. Jesus wanted to do something in John and Peter. And if, if it would have ended at verse 10, where we see it, none of us would be here right now. They had to continue to act in obedience to Jesus. And we're all thankful for that. And Jesus is not done with you. There is still more of him to obey in joy. There's more growth for you. Uh, and it might actually correlate to growth groups for you. There's more prayer. There's more of God's people. There's more earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts, especially that you would prophesy. There's more adventure in Christ's kingdom for you. And he wants you to seek that even more than physical, what seems like very more real needs, like your paycheck. Believer, there is more of Jesus for you. But what if you don't believe? Check this out. John didn't need to see Jesus to believe. He just saw enough, just a shred of evidence, or a cloth specifically, or two, of evidence, and he chose to believe. We have the eyewitness testimony of believers who testified to something in a city where it would have been easiest to disprove and most desirable to do so by their enemies. No one was ever to be able to produce a body. The tomb is still empty. And I'm inviting you right now, if you don't yet believe, I'm inviting you to doubt your doubts and to love your Savior. In conclusion, as I close, I, I said at the beginning that one commonality between both of these groups is that they're both processing doubt. But there's, there's another commonality, and that is that Jesus sought these doubters out. And he, uh, he gives this message to Mary in verse 17 that's so important for us. He says, I go to my bro-, he says, go, Mary, to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, my God and your God. The implication is that before all of this, that we did not have God as our Father and as our God. And John clarifies this in his first epistle. He says, he who practices unrighteousness is unrighteous. He is a child of the devil. We're born into sin. We're born in the rebellion of the devil. 
And we need what Jesus did on the cross and what he did through rising again from the dead so that we could have repentance and new life. And so he's saying to you, because of what I've done, you believe in me, my father is your father. My God is your God. And it's a compelling reason as much as it's an invitation for us. Would you stand to your feet with me? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the Passover bread and he lifted it up and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the Passover cup and he said, this cup is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is inviting you to come out of remembrance with doubt, with unforgiveness, with pain, with whatever it is that would stand in the way of him drawing near to you and you, through faith, being present with him. He's inviting you to the table and he's inviting you to faith and to grow in your faith. At any point in these next few songs before we dismiss, on your time, you can come to the front or the back. If you can say in faith, Jesus, I believe in you. You are my God. My Father is your Father. If you can, through faith, lay down anything that would stand in the way of that and receive who he is for you. At any point in these last two songs.